Good morning. As I'm facing some of the final days in Colorado, I must say that your weather is being cruel. It has been so nice. It's continued to be such a good winter and now into a good spring, and the sun is shining, and I have checked where I'm moving, and it is raining. So I am, uh, I'm struggling with that, but I'll be okay. Before we get started, I, I just want to say one thing, and that is that a lot of times for me, uh, if, if I'm really being honest, religion for me, following God for me, can be a selfish endeavor. Uh, by that, what I mean is, is oftentimes my prayers are, are kind of geared towards some very trite things, kind of mundane things of life. God, you know, help me to have a good day today. God, help my kids to, to do good on that quiz that they're going to be doing today. God, help me have a safe drive. I don't want another fender bender. God, help my house to sell quickly. Um, but then you come across weeks like, like this week, and you see things in your newsfeed like you've seen, like the images that you've seen this week. And it puts a new perspective on the curse that we talk about in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the very chapter that we're looking at today. It, it puts kind of a, a new definition on what it means to struggle through life. And I just feel like it would be appropriate to, before we dive into the passage and think about how this relates to, to our life, to think about other lives, to think about the kind of life that other people are living right now, the kind of hell that they're going through right now, the kind of worries that they have on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, just have a moment of, of prayer for Syria, um, for decisions that are being made of how to, how to handle Syria, and who, people whose lives are, are in the balance. Let's pray. God, as we open your word this morning, it's hard on a week like this not to feel somewhat insignificant in our own struggles, not to feel like sometimes our prayers are, are not enough. And so God, as we, we think about impossible situations with impossible solutions, we just pray that you can be God, you can reign over their lives, that people can find peace and be healing, that people can make wise decisions, that whenever we have an opportunity to engage in this world, that we can bring peace and love with our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. About 13 and a half years ago, I uh, made one of the biggest deals of my life. I, I somehow convinced my wife to marry me. It was an amazing thing. She had broken up with me a couple of times. I was clearly trying to marry up, and somehow she came to the conclusion that she would, in fact, marry me. And I was, of course, ecstatic. So 13 years ago, we got married. And of course, after you get married, there's the, the honeymoon period. And, and for me, this was my responsibility. If I was to be completely transparent and honest, I did just about zero for the wedding planning. Any men like that? Any of you didn't really care? Yeah, a couple of you can be honest. Didn't really carry my weight when it came to the wedding. There was a lot of stress. There was a lot of decisions that had to be made. And I don't think I really made one real decision. But the honeymoon, the planning of the honeymoon was mine. That was my baby. I didn't even tell her where we were going to go. And of course, like when you're first getting married, you want everything to impress that other person in your life. Because you're still, even though they've committed to you, you want to make sure that commitment stays. And so you want to make sure that the honeymoon is a good thing. And so I planned a trip to, to Maui, and I was outlining every day. This is the, the itinerary. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be an amazing time. And we had to balance between doing too much and having the time on the beach just to relax. And I had it all planned out. Everyone wants their honeymoon to go well. It didn't get off to a great start, to be honest. Uh, we, we flew from LA to, to the big island. And during that process, somehow my wallet was stolen. 
it was a really bad deal because I never carry cash except for that one day when I have all the wedding cash that we had just received. That was in my wallet. For whatever reason, I had taken my wife's ID, her, her license, and that was in my wallet. So we're landing on the big island post 9-11 without any ID, without any money, and all my credit cards having to be canceled that Val and I were sharing. It was a bad way to start the week, but then things got better because we started to do all the things that I'd planned out. There's the road to Hana, there's the hikes that we were doing, these various excursions, but the highlight for me was the day we took the sea kayak out. I rented a sea kayak for a day, and I thought this is going to be the amazing day where my wife says, you have planned this well. And so we get out on the sea kayaks. We had planned the whole day with like a picnic lunch that I had packed, which probably wasn't the best choice because I think it was peanut butter and jelly. But nonetheless, we, we had our picnic lunch. We had our snorkel gear. We were just going to go paddling by the coast every once in a while, break to snorkel, and then paddle some more, then break for lunch. And the day started off amazing. We get out into the water, and it was just as you imagine, clear as can be. You can see fish swimming along with you. There was even a sea turtle that we followed for a while. It was a great time. But eventually, we needed to break for lunch. So we're paddling out at sea, and we're looking for a good beach to land on. And as we're looking for a good beach to land on, Valerie spots one. She says, look at that one right there. There's a nice long stretch of sand. Let's go there. And so we begin paddling on shore. Now, I had been on a sea kayak before, but never in real waves. And so as I'm paddling towards the shore, I am just kind of white-knuckled holding on, trying to paddle, trying to keep this thing afloat. I don't want to capsize because, again, I'm trying to impress my wife at this point. And we're trying, you eventually, newlyweds, you eventually give up. But I'm still trying to impress her. And so we're trying to get to shore, and all my energy is focused on not capsizing, not falling over. And eventually, we make it. We get into the sand. And for the first time, as I get out of the kayak, I begin to look around me, and I realize it's a very populated portion of the beach. But I notice for the first time that it's a clothing optional beach. And everybody has chosen the option of not wearing clothes, except for me and my wife. And I've never felt so uncomfortable to be wearing clothes. But as I stand there thinking about my options, we can either stay here and eat lunch or face the waves behind me, which were already pretty scary. And I wasn't having the courage at that moment to go back into the waves. So we figured peanut butter and jelly it is. And we sit down on our clothing optional beach and we begin to eat. And I, I, I paid a lot of attention to that sandwich. I looked at every detail. I knew that sandwich well. And eventually, I began to feel somewhat comfortable with the scenario at hand, and I'm enjoying the, scen the scenery being the, the, the ocean. Yes, I was watching the ocean in front of me, trying to keep my eyes to the ocean and the sandwich, when lo and behold, this gentleman comes walking right in front of me. And when I say right in front of me, I mean like 10 feet in front of me. And he stops right when he gets in front of me and feels inspired to do a headstand right in front of me. My sandwich was done. It was time to go back to the ocean. I was just done with that beach. But I, ha I have to give it to them. I, hats off to the people there because they were so comfortable in their own skin. They were so comfortable there being fully exposed. Me, on the other hand, I have never been on that same page as them. In fact, I am probably on the opposite page. I have these reoccurring nightmares that I imagine some of you have as well. And it often starts in a situation like 
this right here. And I show up to church right here at your church, Boulder Adventist Church. And I come here and I'm ready to even preach sometimes. And it's usually right about now when I'm partway into the message that I suddenly realize that I forgot my clothes at home. And not one of you nice souls had the courtesy to tell me before I got up here. And so then you're kind of thinking, oh, what do I do now? And it's the most stressful moment. And these dreams happen over and over again. Because there's this fear of the exposure. There's this fear of being seen. I'm so bad about this that it used to really bother me when my dog would watch me change. You guys have dogs like this? My dog would just sit there in my bedroom and she would stare at me. And I'd be like, Sienna, look, Sienna, stop, stop, Sienna. And I, it would bother me to change in front of my dog. I say used to only because she's blind. It would still bother me now today. Because there's something uncomfortable about this feeling of exposure. There's something uncomfortable about people seeing you in your shame. But we know that that's not how it always was. We know that it wasn't always that we had to worry about being exposed, that we had to worry about shame and guilt and fear. And we know it because of the creation story. Genesis chapter 2 is what we were looking at last week. And it ends with this. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. It reminds me of one of my favorite bumper stickers. I brought a picture for you. God's original plan was to hang out in a garden with some naked vegetarians. You can laugh at it a little bit, but it's true, right? That was the original plan. The original plan was to hang out in this garden, and the vegetarians, they could sit there, and they could be naked, and there was no shame. And sometimes we feel uncomfortable about this. In fact, I was reading a commentary this week, and the commentary this week was saying, well, of course, this doesn't actually mean that they were really, truly naked. It means that they weren't wearing clothes. But they weren't wearing clothes, but they were surrounded by an aura of God's holy light. And so it's not like anything was really being seen. But it never says that in the text, does it? In the text, it's clearly making this point that the original plan was for them to be naked and for them not to be ashamed. And you know this is a significant point because you see where it's placed in the passage. It's very intentional. You have Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, this brief little portion of the Bible where there's no sin. There's very few places in the Bible like this. You see it here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then you see it at Revelation, the very end. But all throughout, everywhere else in the Bible, it's just completely marred with sin and bad acts of shame from humanity that is broken. But here is a moment where there's still the perfect earth, the perfect humans who haven't yet sinned. And there's a transition when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. Clearly we're entering into a new place where now evil is coming into the garden. And the fall, you can feel the fall is about to happen. But before that happens, the author feels that it's important to signal that they were both there in the garden. They were naked. They were without shame. It's an important fact that the author wants to point out to us. God's original plan was to be in a garden with a couple of naked vegetarians. But it's a plan, a plan that didn't last. A plan that was very brief. A plan that had its fall. And we see it, of course, in chapter 3, the first seven verses. So let's go ahead and read that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for the food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The impact here is almost immediate. They transgress the commandment, the one instruction that they had from God. It's easy on our side to be frustrated with them, right? Because it seems so clear, just stay away from this one tree. You had one job, don't do this one thing. And yet they do it. And the impact of it is immediate. No, they don't die immediately, but they are immediately sensing shame. They're immediately sensing guilt, and they're immediately noticing that they're naked. They're exposed. They're full of shame. So the question is, when was the last time that, that you were naked? And of course, when I say that, I don't mean when was the last time that you were naked, but when was the last time that you were exposed? When was the last time where you found, felt like you were found out? Not like found out by some kind of miscommunication, but found out to be the, the real person that you actually are. Because that's what it's really about, isn't it? What being naked is really about is the fact that there's nothing that can cover who you are. The, the entirety of who you are is completely seen and known, and we're filled with shame about it. So when was the last time that you were found out to be the true person that you are? Maybe it was something that you said. Maybe you told something that wasn't so true. Maybe it was an outright lie. And then there's that moment of truth where it becomes clear that you're caught in your lies. And you feel exposed. You feel full of shame. Maybe it was that moment where you forgot to clear the browser history and someone sees what you've been seeing. They see the kinds of things that you look at and you feel exposed yourself now. You feel full of shame. Maybe it was that communication where you're replying on an email and you're using some choice words to describe someone before you realize that you're doing a reply all. And you're found out and you're full of shame because you've been exposed. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you, you were in a relationship. And for the first time you were willing to be the person who you really are. For the first time you were, you were willing to be in a real relationship where you really let them see you in your entirety. And so you were completely vulnerable with that person. But once they leave then it feels like that trust has been mishandled. And again, you feel, you feel naked because you feel exposed and you feel full of shame. There's knowledge about who you are and it's out there and you don't have control of it anymore. When was the last time that you felt exposed? Because we all feel it. Ever since the garden, ever since this moment where, where they had their eyes open, the devil told them that their wisdom would increase, but they didn't really see this coming, did they? They didn't really understand the kind of wisdom that they would have. And we've been blessed or cursed with that same kind of wisdom ourselves where we see ourselves for who we are. We make choices that aren't right. And after we make those choices that aren't right, we're left feeling uncovered. 
we're left feeling exposed. And so the question is, what do you do in that situation? The question is, how do you respond when you feel so exposed to the world around you? For Adam and Eve, the solution, of course, are the fig leaves. The fig leaves. But the fig leaves have to be the worst designer choice in the history of the world when it comes to clothing. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to wear fig leaves? It would not be the most comfortable of clothing choices, but the second you put them together, if you could somehow sew, I don't, I don't know how they sewed them together, but whatever they did to sew them together, perhaps at first glance they looked like they would be adequate. Perhaps at first glance it seemed like they would actually fix the problem that they were in, and they felt like a sense of relief as it brought the covering. But the problem is they're leaves, and maybe they don't even understand what leaves are going to do because this is their first time to see death, but once the leaves are off the plant, the leaves begin to shrivel. The leaves begin to become brittle. And so what once seemed like an adequate idea of clothing begins to crumble away and still leave you exposed. You try to walk around in those fig leaves, and I imagine the rips begin, the tears begin, and you're left with gaping holes. And we know that it didn't work for Adam and Eve. We know that it wasn't effective clothing, because then God comes into the garden in verse 11, and he says, Eve, Adam, where are you, and why are you hiding? And Adam said, I hid because I'm naked. This is after he put the fig leaves on. After he puts the fig leaves on, he's still identifying with this idea of exposure, that he feels like his shame is being broadcasted, and he needs to go into hiding because the fig leaves don't work. But even though the fig leaves don't work, we still use fig leaves today. Because the fig leaves essentially represent this idea of us trying to take care of our problems. The fig leaves represent us trying to deal with our shame on our own and come up with our own solutions. But our own solutions are never good enough. One of the ways that we do this is through perfectionism. Sometimes we try to, to be better. We recognize at some point in our lives that we're making bad choices. We can see it. It's clear as day. We know that the things that we're doing are not right. We know the things that we're doing are not approved by God. And we become convicted that this is not right. And so we decide we're going to go the other way and we are going to be good people. We're going to make good decisions. And so we try our best to be perfect people. But it fails. It fails again and again because in Isaiah 64 it tells us that even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags when they're cast before God. And so there's nothing that we can do to fix the dilemma that we're in. Have you ever been around people who are trying to be perfect? Have you ever been a part of a perfection community where that's the core theology, the idea is that we can just better ourselves, we can just work on being better people? Sure, we believe in the cross. Sure, we believe that Jesus died to save us. But at the same time, we have to put some kind of effort in, don't we? We have to do something from ourselves, don't we? And so we try so hard to be a good community because we want to be a light in this world around us. My experience has been that most of these people are not very happy people. They may smile. They may, they may say the right things. They may bless you. But there's not that inner joy that just radiates from the inside. Because inner joy can't radiate from the inside when it's coming from a place of failure. And whenever we try to do things on our own, whenever we try to improve ourselves, when we try to be better people, we find ourselves failing. And so sometimes we, we move past perfection, and we, we're not, we, we realize that perfection's not working, but we certainly can work on the exterior image that people see, can't we? Like, even if I know that things aren't right inside, I can at least make sure that the things that are on the outside are better seen so that people think I'm a good person. For me, this happens on Sabbath morning a lot. 
as a young family, I feel like on Sabbath morning, it's like the devil comes into the house. Anyone can identify with this? There's something about Sabbath morning. Like the rest of your week can just be going just fine, groovy. Like everything's just moving right along. But Sabbath morning comes and everyone's trying to get dressed and we got to get here by a certain time. And, and for me, I, I want to I say something here. I, mean, I, I want to be prepared for like teaching downstairs or preaching up here or whatever's happening. And it becomes this most stressful moment in the house, most stressful day of the week. And so sometimes there's, there's moments when things are said that shouldn't have been said. And I'm not talking about the kids saying them, but coming from my mouth towards the kids. And the, uh, the, the, the pressure just sort of mounts. And there's been times where, where I've driven to church in the same car as my family, and I've said some not nice things in the car in the family, and there's this unpleasant sort of dynamic that's happening, yet the second that I get to the church property, lives transform. It's like Jesus comes into my heart in that moment, because I come out of the car with a big smile on my face. I come out of the car very cheerful, very godlike, and very willing to say, happy Sabbath. So good to see you. How was your week? Oh, blessed, right? My week was so blessed. Such a good week. God is good. It's easy for us to polish the exterior. Sometimes when we realize that perfection is not working, we at least try to do image control, PR control, and let people know that something's happening good in my life, even when I know that it's not. Perfection. But then there's another way. Sometimes there's other things that happen in our lives when we're looking at, at what, what it is that we do. Like, what do we do in response to the shame that we feel? And it's diversion. Sometimes the diversion happens when we realize that the perfection isn't working. Image control isn't enough. So sometimes it's better to not even think about what's going on in my inner world, in my, the, the, the inner conscience. Sometimes it's better to fill my life with, with other things. Because essentially what's happening is when we have shame, shame is connected to this, this emotion which is connected to our, our self-worth, isn't it? And so when you feel shame, you start to question if you're really a worthy person. You start to question whether you really have the, the stuff to make, you, to make you good enough. And when you realize that you can't be good enough by trying to be better, I mean, when you realize that you can't find satisfaction by just polishing the exterior, sometimes we just ignore what's happening inside. We ignore what's causing the root problem of this self-worth problem. And instead, we try to fill it with other things in our lives. And so we try to acquire stuff. We, we try to pursue a higher education, not for the sense of the academics, or not for the sake of the academics alone, but for the sake of self-worth because we're trying to prove something about who we are. And we do it through our careers as well. We, we seek to climb up the ladder. We seek to be better promoted, not because we're so passionate about the work that we do necessarily, but because we want to manage the way that people see us. We want to prove that we're actually worth something. We want to prove that we actually have value, because value stands at odds with the shame. So when you're filled with shame, you're not being filled with value, and so we seek it from other places. Sometimes we seek it by the things that we try to acquire and possess. And so we try to acquire and possess that better house, the better car, the better life. And the more that we possess, the more we think it will reflect who we are. But again, it leaves us feeling empty. Because whether we're talking about perfection, whether we're talking about the things that we do to divert that attention or the things we do to the outside of us, they're all fig leaves. 
And sooner or later, they may cover us for a moment. They may give us the illusion that we can hide from our shame, but eventually we're left with the gaping holes, and we're still left feeling naked and ashamed. So there's another direction that we go. There's another direction. We see it with Adam and Eve as well. So we continue on in the story. God confronts Adam. And he says, where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was naked and I hid myself, Adam says. Jesus, or God says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And it's that busted moment. And then, oh man, caught red-handed. God's calling him out. So how does Adam respond? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God says to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Immediately, they both moved to blame. Can you relate to this? Are any of you blamers? I'm a blamer sometimes. It's so easy to blame. There's something that comes from deep within where I just, the second I'm caught in some kind of imperfection, I want to make sure that the context is known. I want to make sure that you understand why my buttons were pushed and I reacted in a certain way because clearly that's why I reacted. It wasn't really my fault. It's the fault of someone else. And it comes out even in the most mundane, non-important areas of life because it's a natural knee-jerk reaction of mine to blame someone else. I've talked before about how, how I'm a forgetful person. And so it's easy for me to walk around the house and I put things down and I don't know where they are for a moment. That's why I have a special place for my wallet. I have a special place for my keys because Val told me I need it to. And once I realized I need it to, I realized she's right because I was always losing my keys in my wallet. So once I had that place in place, then it worked and I could find them for once. But still there's moments where I forget where something is and I put it down. I could have sworn it was right here on the kitchen counter, but it's not there. So immediately, Val... Why did you move my stuff? <laughs> like, Val, were you cleaning again? You must have moved my stuff because I know I put it right here. Yet time and time again, we go through this same scenario, the same, it's like role-playing again and again, where I blame her for moving my stuff, and then what happens? I find it exactly where I left it. But I never learn, <laughs> never learn, because always my initial response is, it must have been her. It's the woman who did this, not me, because we're good at blaming other people. And when you look at the story, you see Adam and Eve, and they're going through this blame game. I can't help but feel like Adam's blaming is the most despicable of them. See, Eve blames the servant, or the, the serpent. Fair enough. It's the devil, right? And he clearly was tempting her. But Adam blames, blames Eve. And not just Eve, you'll notice he throws God into the mix as well. It was the woman, but it's the woman that you gave me, God. You started this. You initiated it. You take at least partial ownership of the situation that you put me in. But, but Eve, the woman, wasn't it just a chapter ago where Adam's like, oh, God, you've answered my prayers. God, you know, I was left lonely, and I was looking at all the other animals, and they all had companions. I had nothing, but now I have the woman, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, someone I can identify with. That's the, that's the woman that he throws under the bus. And there's this moment we should take to, to recognize that the story of creation elevates the place of women in history. It's a clear thing. Because you see it in chapter 1, 
where, where God creates man and he creates woman, and he creates them in the image of God. Man and woman he created. That makes it very clear that woman and man both together are part of the image of God. It's not something that men carry. It's something that men and women carry, elevating the position of women in the history of the world. But then it goes on, of course, where Adam has this moment where he's like, oh, there's all this creation that's there, but I don't have anyone. At this moment, it's very clear that Adam is the elevated creation above all the other creation, right? Because you have all the animals and all this that's happened, but he's the only one that's been created in the image of God, and he's existing there. And, and there's almost this order where you see that things that come in order, the, the last thing is the most important thing. And, and you see that with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is elevated because it's the last thing that's created. But it's almost as if the writer's saying, as the woman comes after the man, it's elevating her position. It's the, the crown of creation. Created from the side of Adam, showing equality between the two of them. And this is the woman that Adam's willing to throw under the bus. You see, whenever we find ourselves willing to shame women, whenever we find ourselves willing to slander women, whenever we're willing to find ourselves trying to silence women or put them over in their place there over here, or whenever we find ourselves trying to make them an object rather than a person, what we're doing is we're undoing the creation story. We're undoing what God had started in creation, and Adam starts first by throwing her under the bus. It was the woman. It was the woman that you gave me. You see, this whole idea of blame, it's all just another diversion tactic, isn't it? Because we know that we're guilty, we know that we've done something wrong, yet we want to push the blame on someone else, and so we want to make someone else pay for our sins, or at least put the spotlight on them. If I feel naked, I want to be in the shadows, so put the light on them, and let's look at their sins rather than my sin. And it's not always even necessarily directly blame that we see this happen with. Related to this is, is another thing called critique. It's where we find problems with other people. They may or may not be related to mine, but the more I can find on you, the more dirt on you I can find and dig up and, and talk about, the better that I feel about myself. And sometimes you find people, and you've known people like this, where they find, they just have this hobby horse. They have something they like to talk about, some sin, something that's wrong with the world, and they always talk about it, they always bring it up, and they're always criticizing it. And yet it seems like oftentimes, Given enough time, what we find is that person may actually be struggling with the very thing they're talking about. That person may be struggling with the very thing that they're criticizing so much. Unfortunately, we know this a lot in part because of preachers, don't we? I can think off the top of my head how many times I've seen this happen with preachers where there's a certain preacher who's a well-known preacher who has an issue with A, B, or C, and they talk about it all the time. Because preachers, we're given this unique soapbox right here, right? We, we have this opportunity to share what's on our heart. And for whatever reason, this preacher will share what's on his heart again and again, really digging into a certain people, or a certain people group, or a certain activity, or a certain sin. And then eventually, it comes to light that it's the very thing that he is doing in secret. The very thing that he is doing in hiding. Be careful when you're critical. Be careful when you're passionate about other people's sins. Because you might be talking about your own problems and not even know it. Because we have this tendency to look outside of ourselves. We want to blame somebody else. So what do we do? What do we do when we feel exposed? What do we do when we recognize and we come to the place and we realize that our fig leaves aren't enough? 
the shame is still there. There's, a, there's an author, Brene Brown, that my wife has gotten me hooked on. And it seems like lots of women like Brene Brown, but I'm jumping right on the Brene Brown ship myself. It's, she, she talks about, she's known as like the shame and vulnerability researcher. And one of the things that she talks about shame and vulnerability is this idea that, that shame comes from a place of not sensing any self-worth. You don't have, have worthiness. And if you don't have the worthiness, you're not able to confront the problems that you have. And she differentiates the idea between shame and guilt. Guilt is when you say, I have a problem and I've messed up. Shame is when you say, I am the problem. I am messed up. And, the, and when, you, when you feel like that you're the problem, when you feel like you're the one that's completely broken on and of your own, it's part of your identity, then it becomes hard to deal with it. And so the shame then goes into hiding. The shame stays in dark places. The shame never shares with anyone. Yet in the Bible, it's always pushing us to share the darkness, to let people see the stuff that's within so that the light can come inside. Perhaps this is why it says, confess your sins to one another. We often think, oh, that's, we don't really have to confess sins unless I sin against someone else. I don't really need to share what's going on in my heart because I'll just tell God about that. And what we're actually doing sometimes as we just share simply with God and we never become vulnerable with anyone around us is we're actually letting that shame continue to have domination in our life. Rather than recognizing that we can be vulnerable, we can tell people that we're broken. We can tell people that we struggle. We can tell people that we've messed up. Because one of the most powerful things that happens is when I'm willing to tell you about who I am, I can say that I too am going through this. And when you hear that I too am going through this, it changes your perspective and you realize that, that this isn't about shame anymore, it's about guilt. And yes, we have broken things in our lives, but it's not the makeup of who our identity is because the makeup of who our identity is always comes through Christ. And this is a promise that we see that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. We often refer to this section as, as the curse. And it sounds like it's a really negative thing. But it's embedded in here that we find the most positive message in the Bible. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done all of this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ellen White talks about this enmity and she says this enmity is a supernaturally in place thing that we have. It's the friction that's between us and evil. Otherwise, we would have nothing to stop us from just following the devil all the way. But instead, we have this enmity that God has gifted us with. That not only does the devil have enmity towards us, but we have enmity towards the devil. So that when we see things like we saw this week, when we see children who are being affected by chemical weapons, we find some kind of anger that comes from within. And we say, this isn't right. When we see people who are mistreated, there's something that burns inside and says, this isn't just. It's the enmity that God has given us to recognize that the world isn't as it should be, that the world has potential to be something else. But the potential only comes from the seed. People look at this and they say, this idea of the, the enmity that happens between your offspring and her offspring shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
is the first messianic prophecy that we have in the Bible. It's the first moment where we see God foreshadowing something that was about to happen. It's the first moment where Adam and Eve feel so low, yet they recognize there's hope in the world around them because there's victory that's going to happen. And the victory doesn't just simply happen only at the cross and only in that moment when the world comes to an end, but the victory begins today because of the cross. The victory begins today because that enmity between us and evil can continue to grow where we say, this isn't the life that I want to live. This isn't who I am. I don't have to identify with my brokenness. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, I've made mistakes. But this isn't who I am. I was created for something more. I was created for something better. And then we can begin to live in a freedom that we haven't yet lived in. Because when you get to the end of the chapter, God looks at the fig leaves. And he says, this isn't going to work. Your fig leaves are faulty. The things you try to do to cover your own shame will never work. And so he gives them animal skin, something more durable, something that actually works, something that, that doesn't rip every time you walk. And people look at this text and they say, what's happening here, as scholars look at it, almost everyone agrees that this is the first animal sacrifice you see in the Bible. This moment where Adam and Eve are without clothes, they're covered in shame, and they feel this immense guilt that they don't know how to deal with, and God in his mercy offers up the first innocent life of an animal, perhaps a lamb, and he covers them. He covers them in their shame. He gives them the freedom to walk about with their heads held high. He gives them the freedom to walk about without uh, worrying about their shame, without worrying about their guilt, because yes, they're broken, but yes, they're also covered by God. The same thing's offered to us. We don't have to keep living in our shame. We don't have to keep identifying with the mistakes that we've made. We can accept the sacrifice. We can accept the covering. We can accept the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father God, help us to stop trying. Help us to give up trying to cover ourselves. Help us to give up on trying to deal with our shame on our own. But recognize that the only place we can find covering the only place we can find a lack of embarrassment is under your covering, under your grace. And as we live in that, not just at some future date in eternity, but as we live in that today, help us to experience the freedom, the freedom of not having to worry about who we are, the freedom of not having to worry about whether we're good enough, the freedom of not having to worry about who we are, but simply rest the grace of Jesus. Pray in the name of